0: Hi there, I'm Jen Hale Christie and you're listening to Preacher. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Today we have our very first guest preacher, Dr. Amanda Pittman, a professor at Abilene Christian University in West Texas. Amanda is a friend and colleague through our network of women ministers, and she's graciously agreed to preach a word from the Gospel of Luke. Beginning in chapter nine, verse 51, Jesus heads toward Jerusalem, calling his disciples to take up their crosses and follow. But it turns out there are lots of reasons not to join Jesus on the road. What will these disciples ultimately decide to do? And how will we respond to the call of Jesus now? We'll first hear Amanda's sermon, and then Amanda and I will talk about her early preaching experiences, and what this text from Luke has to say about honoring the space that God has already created for all. All right, Amanda, we're ready.
1: As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. Let's pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. The trips that we take, whether they're small or large, have a way of becoming part of the story we tell about our own lives. Maybe for you, it was the trips you used to take to your grandmother's house. The things you would pass on the drive there or the things you would look forward to doing or eating when you got there. Maybe the trip that comes to mind when you think about your own life story is something more like a mission trip or a global experience. You know, that first time that you realized precisely how small your world was and you had your first invitation to think more broadly and more generously and more critically about the world that you live in. Maybe for you, it was the first time you got away after a particularly difficult season. The first time you felt like you could simply sit and rest and take a deep breath. Maybe the kind of travel that comes to mind are family vacations when you were a child. When you remember driving all the way to Yellowstone or getting stuck somewhere in the middle of Kentucky. The trips that we take have a way of defining our lives, even just for a season. That's been the case with my own family this summer. My family packed up and flew across the country to visit some beloved friends, and even though it wasn't my toddler's first time on an airplane, it might as well have been. I can guarantee you that there was no one else in the TSA line at 5.30 on a Saturday morning who found the proceedings quite that enthralling. He had been talking about the airplane ride for weeks, telling random strangers in the grocery store, I'm going on an airplane. I keep finding my dining room chairs rearranged in the shape of airplanes. And for weeks since we got back, he keeps asking when he can go on another airplane. The thing is, we did some fun things at our destination, but for my toddler, it wasn't just the destination. But the journey there that's become the defining feature of our summer. It's much the same with Luke's Gospel. The journey to Jerusalem, as well as the events there, are the defining feature of the story. Luke arranges his Gospel in three parts, the ministry in Galilee at the beginning, the journey to Jerusalem in the middle, and the passion narrative at the end. So the whole central section of the book from verse 2 of chapter 9 through verse 20 of chapter 19, is defined by this trip. No less than 16 times in these chapters, Luke reminds us that Jesus and those who accompany him are on the way, and more specifically, on the way to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't let us forget either that we are traveling or precisely where we are traveling to. All roads in this gospel lead to Jerusalem, and on the way there, Jesus teaches those who are following him, through parable, through example, and through command, what it means to be his disciple. And so today we are beginning that journey with Jesus, and I'd invite you to join me in imagining ourselves as one of those unnamed men and women who are walking along the road with him. We begin today in Luke 9, verse 51. And over the last chapter or so, Jesus has been preparing for this trip. Now, as we might rightly expect, Jesus' preparations for this particular journey to Jerusalem bear very little resemblance to the way we prepare for our own travel. Now, unlike our own preparations, which, at least in my case, involve planning clothing items based on our activities and abundant list making and the weighing of suitcases, and the removal of the three or four fiction books making my suitcase too heavy. In contrast to that, none of Jesus' preparations include what you should take with you. Our text today is in fact bracketed by Jesus telling people that when they go out on mission, not to take anything with them. Our own preparations for travel involve lots of planning for logistics. What day will we leave? What time will we leave? Where will we stop on our way there? At least in my trips, a lot of emphasis on where we will eat and what sights we'll see. But exactly none of that is evident here. In fact, one of the first things that happens is that we'll see that Jesus has no place to stay. He's utterly dependent on the hospitality of others. It's practically impossible to even trace Jesus' exact itinerary on the way to Jerusalem. The destination seems to be the only salient feature of the trip. And the timing of this trip in Luke 9 isn't driven by convenience. It's God's timing at work here. The time has come, it's been fulfilled, for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, on that path that will take him through death and resurrection to the ascension back to heaven. Now, Jesus' preparation for this journey to Jerusalem doesn't resemble our own preparation really at all. But instead, Jesus prepares by reiterating and communicating his own identity. Twice in chapter 9, as his acclaim and notoriety have spread through his own ministry and the ministry of the Twelve, people have started asking, who is this man? Which of the popular perceptions of Jesus is the right one? Is he, in fact, John the Baptist back from the dead? Is he Elijah? or one of those other long-dead prophets? Who exactly is this Jesus? And here in chapter 9, the question is not just asked, but definitively answered, though the answer still doesn't seem to be quite clear, even for those people who've been closest to Jesus the longest. Peter, correctly, confesses Jesus to be the Messiah, but then balks when Jesus defines his Messiahship, as one of rejection and suffering, death and resurrection. Eight days later, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, in the midst of the obvious presence of God and right in front of Peter, James, and John. God speaks directly from heaven to confirm Jesus' distinctive identity vis-a-vis Moses and Elijah. But even then, these three disciples in Jesus' inner circle tell no one what they've seen. And when they come down off the mountain, Jesus finds his own disciples arguing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest, opposing others who work in Jesus' name but aren't part of their own particular circle, and offering to call down fire from heaven on unsuspecting Samaritans, rather than merely shaking the dust off of their So we might suspect that Jesus prepares us to follow him to Jerusalem by reiterating and defining his identity precisely because we have always had such trouble seeing Jesus rightly and clearly. But I wonder if that's the only reason. Perhaps Jesus also makes this particular preparation because there's no way anyone would choose to follow Jesus to Jerusalem unless they were confident in the one leading them there. This isn't, after all, a jaunt through the countryside or a visit to a beach resort. We're going to Jerusalem in spite of, or rather because of, the suffering that Jesus will endure there. No wonder, it says, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. And if we're going to join him, we must know enough to trust the one we are following. And we must know what following him will mean. Because Jesus has said, anyone who wants to be his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow. And so with that preparation complete, Jesus and the men and women from Galilee who've so far decided to follow him start walking down the road. But it very soon becomes clear that the decision to follow Jesus isn't just made once, but over and over again. They are actively walking down the road when Jesus begins to engage some of his fellow travelers in conversation. The first person volunteers, saying to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. The answer is earnest, even enthusiastic. It reminds me of Peter's proclamation at the Last Supper. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. But Jesus responds to this disciple here, not like we might expect there's no praise or affirmation. Jesus doesn't even express any kind of gratitude. Instead, he simply responds to this proclamation with a reminder. Foxes have dens, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. While this first individual spoke up on their own, Jesus calls on, or rather calls out, the second and third conversation partners with these two simple words we've heard before Follow me. Jesus said that same thing to Peter in Luke chapter 5, and in response, Peter, along with James and John, simply walked away from a miraculous and probably very lucrative catch of fish. Jesus said it to Levi, who walked away from his tax booth to follow Jesus, then through a party to celebrate. But we notice here that the immediacy of those early responses is missing. Instead, the person replies, But first, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And in reply, Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus' response here seems frankly unfeeling, to say the least. Why begrudge the man an opportunity to go and bury his father? The third exchange isn't much better. She, too, says that she wants to follow Jesus, but she has her own but first. Let me go back and say goodbye to those in my house. It's an eminently reasonable request. But in response to this second request to do something else first, Jesus says, That no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Three times here, Jesus has called people to radical discipleship. And three times, Luke doesn't tell us what happens. The story creates this moment of decision, a moment of crisis even. Does the first disciple wonder if maybe radical dependence just really isn't for her and slowly fade into the background? Does the second decide that Jesus is totally unreasonable, maybe even a little unhinged, and then goes back home to bury his father? What about that third disciple who merely wanted to return home to say goodbye? We simply don't know what happened with any of these people. And maybe the point of the story isn't so much what they decided, but what we will. For after all, we have lots of our own statements that we could fill in here. I will follow you to Jerusalem, Jesus, but first let me get my career off the ground a little bit. I will follow you to Jerusalem just as soon as I retire and I have all of my free time back. I said I'd follow you, Jesus, but I have to tell you this discipleship business Turned out to entail a little more of some things and a lot less of other things that I bargained for. I'll follow you to Jerusalem, Jesus, but did you see how those other people treated you? I'll follow you to Jerusalem, Jesus, but I've just got to get my own affairs in order first. There's so much else that needs doing. I will follow you, Lord, on that self sacrificial way. I just need to attend to my own losses, to my own grief first. I will follow you to Jerusalem, Jesus, I will. But even though I knew that you said that to follow you meant to take up our crosses daily, I confess I did not really know what that meant when I started. You know, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus says, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus seems harsh here, but isn't it true? that there is no convenient time to head toward Jerusalem. Cross-bearing is never going to be convenient. There is no good time to be presented with a humanitarian crisis and to hear the call of the gospel urging you to do something, do anything. There's no convenient time to overhear a racist joke and to feel the Lord nudge you to stand for the vulnerable. There is no good time to give up your possessions, to reevaluate the way you spend your money and what you do with your time, and to decide to use those things in a way that is not primarily oriented toward your good gain. There's no good time to do that. There is only God's time and God's calling. There will always be a reason to delay, to hesitate, or to turn back. Because intentionally losing your life in the name of Jesus makes no sense by anything other than a kingdom of God calculation. And so if we're waiting for the day when we feel like we have enough security, enough happiness, enough money, enough energy, enough time to obey the call of Jesus, we will wait our entire lives by the side of the road. Perhaps you, like me, obeyed the call to follow Jesus a long time ago. You committed your life to Jesus. You confessed him as Lord, not just over part of your life, but over all of it. That may have been a long time ago for you, but Jesus never stops calling us to follow. Whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross not once, but daily. Every day. Today. Today. And there is grace enough in that daily calling to follow, too. Because the path to Jerusalem isn't just a matter of grand gestures and dramatic sacrifices, although Jesus will call us to those. It is also a matter of putting one foot in front of the other on a path that is not aimed at upward mobility and admiration. It's also stepping into a pattern of life that builds in practices of losing that life for the sake of the gospel, only then to find it again. It's also a matter of turning back to Jesus when, like Peter, we discover that our confident and enthusiastic proclamations of our willingness to follow Jesus wherever it takes us actually have no root. And in the time of testing, we fall away. Maybe Jesus says to us what he said to Peter. When you have returned, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Jesus goes on to say that the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. The fruit of justice, of mercy, of salvation and liberation is ripe for the picking. But if no one steps up to the plow, That fruit will rot on the vine, and a world so badly in need of the nourishment of the gospel cannot benefit. The harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. May God make us, the kind of people who rise every morning ready to put our hands to the plow without looking back, fit for service in the kingdom of God.
0: Well, thank you so much, Amanda, um, for guest preaching on the podcast today. Um, I would love it if you would just take a minute and tell us about yourself um, for our listeners who don't yet know you. Um, Tell us about yourself, where you currently live, kind of what your day-to-day life looks like.
1: All right. My name is Amanda. I am a professor at Abilene Christian University. I teach courses in both New Testament and Christian ministry. So I live here in Abilene with my family. I uh, grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area moved out here for school and am now back as a professor.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here today. Can you tell us about when you first felt a nudge or a prompting or a gifting to preach?
1: Sure. So my first nudge toward a calling to preach happened when I was in undergrad at Abilene Christian. I took a preaching class because it was required for graduation, not mm-hmm. because I had any inclination or um, really even wanted to take the class. I just knew it was on the program, so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And there were some clear moments in that class where people began to call out a gift in me that I had not named in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my first experiences, um, I'd done a lot of public speaking, but public speaking in general is different to me than preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, preaching has different components and much different responsibilities. And so the fr- those first efforts to, to discern how the word addresses the world uh to live into and speak from a text in a way that addresses the needs of those hearing it. That was something unlike anything I'd ever done before. Mm-hmm. And in that space to have people begin to name in me, you have, you have gifts in this. Uh, have you ever thought about a calling to preach, that was something that was both surprising to me at the time and very moving and a little troubling too. I wasn't quite <laughs> sure what to do with that at first. Can you say
0: more about why that was troubling?
1: When I took the preaching class, I'd only very recently changed my major to ministry. I had started off college with a very different vision of what my life was going to be. Mm -hmm. And so it came in the midst of a season in which I knew that I was training for ministry, but I had no idea what that would mean. All I knew was that I wanted to be ready. I wanted to be equipped for whatever opportunities God put in front of me. I just never expected preaching to be one of those. (laughs) Yeah, so the people who
0: called that out in you, um, I think that's such an important part of community, you know, for people to call out the gifts that we see in one another and to help discern, um, to name and to celebrate those gifts. Can you say more about like, was it classmates? Was it professors? Was it other mentors? Like who were the people in your life who were seeing this and calling it out?
1: It was in that first instance, that first nudge toward preaching. It was both my classmates and my professors. And so as a professor now, the calling forth, the naming of gifts in the students that occupy my classroom is something I take with the utmost seriousness. Um, It's an honor to be in a position to help other people discern what God has equipped them and called them to do. Um, But beyond that point, I will say that the first time I began to think of myself, um, not just as a person who could preach, but as a preacher. It mm-hmm. happened the first time I was invited to preach at my own home church mm. because there was something distinct and important about being called to preach by the community where you bring casseroles to the potluck and you show up at people's birthday parties and you host Bible studies and you do the full life of the church together. There's something distinct and important about the church naming those gifts.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Was that the Coal Mill Road Church of Christ? It was Durham,
1: North Carolina.
0: That's right. That's that's a special place. Thank you so much. Um, well, I loved hearing your sermon. Um, it's such an important word. Um, I think we don't, don't hear often enough just how radical the call to discipleship is, and um, pass the passages that you know where Jesus seems to be pretty harsh, um, towards people who want to follow him. You know, if you don't, you know, if you don't hate your, your mother or your, your brothers then you can't be my disciple, you know, like there are some passages like that where we're left wondering why in the world would he say these things to people who want to follow him? Um, and I, I just love the way that you framed those kinds of, um, things that he said as this is a call that we need to take seriously and we need to be willing to pursue it, um, and not look back. Uh, You said it much more eloquently than that, but I wonder if there's, um, you know, just kind of as a last word, is there anything, um, kind of a reflection on the sermon, anything that you want to share?
1: When I think about this text in Luke 9, I think about other places in Luke's gospel where Jesus seems pretty unreasonable. Um, And that happens surprisingly often if you're reading closely. So he makes very similar claims. The one you just referenced comes in Luke 14. When he not only says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and mother. He also says, no one can be my disciple who doesn't give up all their possessions. Mm. The call to love your enemies, right? To not retaliate, but to give good where bad is done to you. I don't know that it gets more unreasonable than that. (laughs) Or at least impossible seeming, if not unreasonable. And I find in my own life that so often when I'm reading a text like that, my inclination is to want to um, buff the rough edges off a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to make it less prickly. I want to make it less demanding. I want to find just enough wiggle room that I feel like I'm not being called to anything that's quite that important. Mm -hmm. And so I try to catch that tendency in myself. Um, and I find that reflected in the answers that people give along the way. This sort of, yes, but, yes, but, or but first. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's been an important and remains an important spiritual exercise for me to try to attend to the places where I want to say, yes, but, in terms of the call to discipleship. Mm-hmm. And so I feel a lot of kinship with the people on the road. And I think that places the onus on us to decide what we do with those kind of callings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you're reminding me now of your examples of, you know, just wait until I get to retirement and I have lots of time or wait until I'm making a little more money. I mean, I think those are such real, tangible examples of things, you know, that we say or that we hear others say. Um, And it's easy to think that there's going to be some future day that comes where everything's going to be perfectly aligned to make that easier. And the point is, it's not easy. There's never like a convenient time mm-hmm. um, to do this.
1: Yeah. I love that. And it doesn't always have to be huge, right? The callings mm-hmm. of Jesus may not be convenient, but they're not even always that big. Mm-hmm. I think I used the example of standing up when someone makes a derogatory joke, right? Yeah. That's not a huge life reorienting thing, but it is a thing that takes courage. It is a thing that takes a commitment and a willingness to risk in pursuit of obedience to the calling of the gospel.
0: So, I I have one last question that this is bringing up for me because I'm thinking about, you know, kind of the context um, and the vision of this podcast to be about honoring the space that God's already created for everyone, right? Like acknowledging that um, for many of us, we've experienced exclusion um, from the church um, based on our gender or some some aspect of our identity. Um, And so I wonder if you see something in the passage today, you know, about this radical call to discipleship, like what does that have to say for um, making making room for everyone in a community of faith?
1: It's clear in Luke's gospel, when Jesus starts down the road to Jerusalem, that up to this point, he's invited pretty much everyone to come with him. There has so far not been a category of people um, that have not been included in the ministry of Jesus. And by extension, there's not a category of people that's excluded from the call to be a disciple. The call to take up our crosses and to follow Jesus to Jerusalem applies to everyone. There's no distinction there. And we often, we often tend to start with questions about, well, let me, let me rephrase that. If when we think about the community of Christ followers, when we think about the church, we begin with the calling of Jesus, and that puts everything else, I think, in a, in a different perspective. The call to follow Jesus captures everybody. We are all called. We are all gifted. We're all responsible. And we all ought to cheer each other on. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to say? Uh, no, just a general thank you to you for this opportunity um, and, for, and for envisioning a space um, for these sermons to, um, to find ears that are interested in hearing them. So I'm really, I love the project. Um, I've sent it to a couple of people already. In fact, in the last couple of months, I've had two conversations with women who, for a variety of reasons, are very complimentary and and not intending to move anywhere else kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. We're looking for ways to hear from more female preachers. And I imagine, I mean, those are just the two that I happen to have conversations with. Yeah. And so I suspect that there are a lot more. Yeah. Um, who might be especially interested in hearing from women from or connected with churches of Christ, because that's where they live. So,
0: yeah, I think yeah, this I is think...
1: really going to meet a need that nothing else is, and I'm so excited and uh, thrilled to be as porter.
0: Well, thank you. I'm I'm just so grateful um, for people like you who are willing to take time out of your already very very full lives um, to prepare and deliver a sermon and sit down and talk with me for a few minutes. I really appreciate All right. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much, Amanda. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. If today you find yourself on the outside without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you're one who bears the name, minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or you're considered a religious or faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might've said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you helps to shape the future of this podcast and this community. You can always email me at jenhalechristie at gmail.com or connect on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn at jenhalechristie. Thank you to all who have already emailed, texted, and connected through social media please consider subscribing rating and reviewing this podcast it lets me know you're part of this community you find value here and it helps others discover it thank you for listening and i'll see you next time